Our scripture this morning is John 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Good to have you with us. Uh, turn me up just a little bit. There you go. Thanks, Luke. Believe is our current teaching series, The Gospel According to John. The title of this weekend's message is The Big Test. I don't know if you knew this, but God wrote a book. And that's what we study from week in and week out. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3. We're looking at verses 22 through 36. Those were the verses that were just read. Not only does, uh, does God have a book, and he wrote a book, but he has a word for you this morning. I'm glad you're here. And uh, grab your sermon notes, and you can follow along. We talked about this last weekend. In religion, in religion, the good are in and the bad are out. Every religious group, every religion and cult in our world today has a standard by which you must live. And the good are in, the bad are out. You've got to hit the standard if you're going to be part of that group. And this is what separates Christianity from every other major cult and religion of our world today. Christianity in the gospel, the humble are in and the proud are out. The only standard that the, that the Bible gives us for uh, becoming a Christian is, that, is humility, is to humble ourselves before God. To become a Christian, all you need is need, and nothing will keep you from seeing and admitting your need like pride. Pride will keep you from seeing and admitting your need for God, and we see a lot of that in our culture today. In fact, Psalm 36.2 puts it this way, the wicked flatters himself in his own eyes that his sin cannot be found out or hated. That's pride. That's pride. So pride is at the root of all of our sins. In fact, the more pride you have, the less you can see in yourself. And not only the less you can see in yourself, the more you dislike it in others. And so here's the big test. The big test of whether you truly know God and are walking in vital union and communion with God is humility. If you tell me that you know God and you're walking in vital union and communion with Him and you're full of pride, I would, I would have to say, I don't think you really know the God of the galaxies. You don't, you're not spending much time with Him because I'm, I'll guarantee you that will humble you. That will transform you. That will change you. And so before we look at what humility is from this text, John the Baptist is a great example of that. He's not the best example of that, but he's a good example of that. Uh, we're going to look at uh, what, is, what is pride. It's on your notes there. I defined it for you. Pride is a self-centeredness and a self-absorption driven by a, need to, uh, by a need to prove to yourself and others that you matter. So it's this glory hunger 
It's based on self-centeredness, which, by the way, the essence of sin is self-centeredness. It's a self-focus. It's taking God's place. It's playing God and, uh, rather than letting God be God in your life. Self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end. Makes your family a means to an end, your marriage a means to an end, your children, your job, your friends, they become a means to an end with self-centeredness. So let me give you some signs of this, uh, this self-centeredness or this pride. It is a secret enemy. We already talked about that. The more you have, the less you can see. And um, it's a fault finder. It's critical of others. Anybody know anyone like that? Like they, they're very critical when you're around them, show of hands. Anybody sitting next to someone like that? Okay, anybody? Okay, you're not, you don't want to point them out in here? I, you better not, okay? And so they're, they're, they tend to be fault finders. They tend to have a harsh spirit. They're condescending, commanding, very condemning. They tend to put on pretense. You guys know what that means? Wear a mask, unable to share faults, feelings, and failures. They're unable to be vulnerable about their struggles. Uh, easily offended, thin-skinned, not teachable, very defensive when they're confronted. Uh, presumption before God and man, attitude of entitlement. It's like, God owes me. You owe me. The world owes me. Sound familiar in our culture today? It, that's very prominent in our culture. Hungry for attention. It, it, there's two forms of this, superiority and inferiority. We'll talk about that later on in our study. And then number eight, neglecting others. Thin, uh, it's very thick-skinned, insensitive to others' needs and feelings. So did I hit everybody in here? I'm just kind of curious. Okay. Was there anybody I did not hit? Just show of hands real quick. Just raise your hand. It would be evident that you do have pride because the more you have, the more you can't see that pride within you. But no, I think that every one of us, if we really look closely at this, we all have a measure of pride. And, and as we've said before, it tells us in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I do not want to be proud. I want to be humble. I want his grace. I need his grace. I'm desperate for his grace. To receive his grace, we must be humble. So what does that look like? Well, here we go. Humble people. Here's your first uh, couple fill in the blanks. Humble people don't compare or compete with others. Don't compare or compete with others. That sounds outrageous in our culture today because our whole culture is driven by this, comparing and competing. That's our culture. Let me uh, read the text, reread the text. We'll just we'll keep, through, uh, keep working through the text. Verses 22 all the way to 26. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, was also, uh, John also was baptizing in Anan and, and near Salem because water was plentiful there. So it's like our dry area here in the valley very, it was a very dry place, so they looked for places of water where they could baptize, and the people were coming and being baptized. Notice the parentheses uh, here. There's a, there's a parenthesis. Anytime it's parentheses in John, he's kind of given a little bit of commentary on this, and he says, for John had not yet been put in prison. We know where John is headed in prison. He's going to go in prison, and they're going to behead him. They're going to cut his head off for proclaiming the name of Christ and also coming against the sin of the culture. And, and so in verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Remember now in the first chapter, John pointed out Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing him out. This is the Messiah. He's come to rescue us, to save us. So that's what they're referring to. So Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Do you hear the comparing and competing going on right there? All are going to him. Jesus is getting more likes on Facebook. He's trending on Twitter and Instagram. His YouTube channel is blowing up. That's what they're saying. 
And uh, well, kind of like what they're saying because they didn't have any of that in those days. But listen to what it says. The best commentary for scripture is always scripture. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You hear what he's saying? It's just, he says, that's, that's dumb when you compare and compete with other people. Now, why is that? Because God doesn't mass produce us on an assembly line. You are not an accident regardless of the circumstances of your conception. You are unique, one-of-a-kind, original, image-bearer of God of immense value, worth, honor, importance. But you are a unique, one-of-a-kind individual. And, and so only you can be you. No one else on earth will ever be able to play the role God has planned for you. Don't ever, don't ever compare yourself with anyone else. You should never, never feel superior or inferior to anyone based on what the Bible teaches, based on what he's saying here. You are to compare your accomplishments, your achievements with God's calling on your life and the capabilities that he has given you individually, the gifts that he's given you. So you look at how he's gifted you and his call he has on your life, and you ask yourself, am I reaching my potential? And oftentimes we don't, and so we need to keep reaching and striving and working, but never to compare ourselves with others, but to compare ourselves with how God has uniquely shaped us it's to see if we're truly living to that level of potential and privilege and power that God has called us to. When you compare yourself with others and become envious, which is often what happens, you demean your unique, one-of-a-kind originality in the Creator who made you. You're basically saying to God, God, you didn't do a very good job. I don't have anything to bring to the world and God, you really messed up in the way that you made me. That's what you're saying. And so humble people don't compare or compete with others. Here's the second thing. Humble people know that every good and perfect gift is from God. So John's disciples come to him and said, hey, they're all going to Jesus. They're all going over there. So they're comparing and competing. And John answers and says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. None of us can receive even one thing unless it is given to us by heaven. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The first thing that comes to mind oftentimes is these world-class athletes you know, these football players, basketball players, and oftentimes when they interview them, there's a, there's a bit of kind of this uh, boasting that's going on. And I, I always go back to this verse. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You guys know what makes a world-class athlete. It, it, it takes desire. Obviously, you want to you be a world-class athlete. And then it takes good training. You have to have some good training in that. But the biggest part of it is it takes DNA. If you don't have DNA, forget it. You're not going to be a world-class athlete. All the training and desire in the world is not going to, is not going to be enough. And uh, even that, all of that is, is really God-given. I'm sure that there are those out there that have the DNA but don't have the desire or the, or the good training. So all of that comes from God. That's, that's what he's saying here. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive. And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? One of my top five movies, and I'm sure that many of you know this if you've been here for any length of time, one of my top five movies is Chariots of Fire. How many have ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Chariots of Fire? Okay. Okay, if, if you have not seen that movie, you will be excommunicated from Desert Breeze, okay? And you cannot join this church until you watch that movie. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke, obviously. But I talk a lot of, I've talked a lot about it through the years because it's such a, uh, it's, it's okay. It's the only illustration I have. And, 
Not until I start watching more movies will I have more illustrations. I haven't been watching that many movies. It's hard to find good, clean movies. That's a good, clean movie. And what it is, it's, uh, it's, it won Best Picture in 1981. It was about the 1924 Great Olympic, Great Britain Olympic team, and it's, it, it's really showing in contrast two different people, two different runners, two different athletes, world-class athletes, Eric Little, he was from Scotland, and Harold Abrahams, who was a Jewish Englishman. Now, Eric Little, when you watch this, he runs for God's glory. It's evident. And there's a scene in the movie where his sister's trying to get him to go back to the mission field, and he was a missionary in China, left the mission field for just a while so that he could run in the Olympics and train, and his, wife, his, his sister's trying to get him to go back, which, by the way, later on, he goes to the mission field, and, and he dies in a prison camp there in China. But he tells his uh, sister this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And so what you see in that, he uses that as a platform. He goes around and gives talks, and he gathers a lot of people because he's a world-class athlete, but he uses that as a platform to make much of Jesus, not to make much of himself, but to make, make much of Jesus. There's a, there's a time in the Olympics, this, this Olympics that he was running in, he was going to have to run on Sunday, and he totally refused to run on Sunday. He thought it was, he, he really had this conviction that it was the Sabbath. I refused to do it. And his thinking was this, it was really, really powerful. You know, all the medals in the world does, do not compare to what I have in Christ. So even, oh, well, I give up a gold medal. No big deal to me. I've got him. And I was only going to use this as a platform, and this is a really strong conviction. They found another race uh, during the week, and he ran that, and he won the, won the gold in that race. But he did that for God's glory. On the other hand, Harold Abrahams, you could see in this movie that he runs for his own glory. There's a scene in the movie just before he runs the 100-yard dash, and he's, the trainer's working him a little bit, and he says this. I have 10 seconds to validate or justify my existence. So if I don't do well here, I'm not going to feel very good about me because it's all about me and, and my glory. And there's a scene in the movie where he loses a race, and oh my goodness, he's overwhelmed, he's distraught, he's angry, he's upset, tons of self-pity, he's sitting up in the stands kind of going over it in his mind, running that race. His girlfriend shows up and basically says, suck it up, dude. Get over yourself. There's more to life. Like what she was trying to get at is like, there's more to life, like me. And you're making such a big deal of this. Grow up is what she tells him. It's really, it's, it's a fascinating scene because, because he, was, he was running to justify himself and Eric Little was, was running because he was justified in Christ and was doing it for God's glory. Here's the point. If you work or run for your identity rather than from your identity, success will go to your head and failure will go to your heart. Success will inflate you. And, and I see that. I see that a lot. And if I'm not careful, I can, I can be right there with everyone else. Success will inflate you. Failure will deflate you. It will, it will go to your heart. One of the ways you can kind of tell this is how do you handle criticism? Does praise inflate you? Then criticism will deflate you. But when you understand who you are in Christ, I mean... When you understand that you're already justified in him, you're not, you're not working to be justified. No, you're working from that justification, and you want to bring honor and glory to God. That's, that, that is a beautiful way to live. You were created by God for God to give glory to God, and the best way to give glory to God is to find satisfaction in him regardless of what's going on in your life. So you got this beautiful contrast between Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. You see, humility is the is the athlete, humility is the athlete who wins the silver and yet is just as excited about the record-breaking athletic accomplishment of the gold medal winner, loving it just for the fact that it was done, whether it was you or him. 
That sounds crazy, doesn't it? In our culture, what? No, that's humility. That's humility. So humility, uh, humble people don't compare or compete with others. Know that every good and perfect gift is from God. Here's the third one. Have an accurate view of their gifts and limitations. <clears throat> I was with a group of people this last week, and I was asking them, what is, what is humility, what is pride? My wife was in that group, and she said, it's, a, it's an accurate view of yourself. And I go, that's, that's right because you're in touch with your gifts and limitations. Listen to what uh, John says in verse 28. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, remember this is what I said, I am not the Christ. He's telling us his limitations right there. I'm not the Christ, <laughs> I can't fix you. You know, I'm not here to, to heal you, I can't do any of that. I can point to the one who can. So he knows his limitations, he doesn't have a Messiah complex. But he goes on and says, but I have been sent before him to prepare the way for him to point to him. I'm a voice. I'm a messenger. I'm not the message. So John's limitations, I'm not the Christ. John's gifts, I have been sent before God. So, so John doesn't seem to have a superiority complex thinking too highly of himself or an inferiority complex thinking too lowly of himself, and that is true humility. Listen to uh, Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So that's a superiority complex, thinking too highly of yourself. But to think with sober judgment, that would be an accurate, an accurate view of yourself knowing both your strengths and weaknesses, knowing your gifts and limitations, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. So there are two sides to the same coin called pride. On one side, there is boasting, superiority complex. On the other side would be self-pity and inferiority complex. They're both the same... You know, the, the, both the same coin of pride, self-centeredness, self-absorption, glory hunger. And so the superiority complex with boasting sounds like this. I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look what a great person I am. And so the tendency with a person that has that superiority complex, it's all their gifts, gifts minus limitations. They, they have too high of a view of themselves. I can do everything. I can do everything. And I know some of you are probably going to that verse found in 4.13 of Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's the wrong application of that verse. If you got that on your wall in your home thinking, yes, I can do everything through Christ, you can't do everything. And we live in a culture today where it says, and I've heard athletes say this, you know, to try to encourage people. But if people really thought about this, it's not very encouraging. It's, it's pretty bogus, actually. But you can do whatever you set your mind to. That's simply not true. And yet you hear people say that all the time. Because, no, I don't have the DNA that you have. I have the desire, and I might have good training. I'll never be able to accomplish what, what you're accomplishing because you have, you're wired up totally different from me. So that's simply not true. By the way, Philippians 4.13 is not talking about, you know, your high achievements and you can do everything. It's actually saying you can do everything through Christ who strengthens you. He's talking about contentment. He's talking about really bad circumstances. And what he's saying is that it doesn't matter what I face. It doesn't matter how I'm wired up. Man, I'm content in Christ. That's what he's saying. It's, it's pretty amazing. But see, that's, a, that's that superiority attitude and doesn't keep in, in mind his own limitations. He's got gifts, and certainly you have gifts, but you've got limitations, and you've got to be okay with that. So that's an attitude of superiority. An attitude of inferiority, it comes in the form of self-pity. I deserve admiration because of how much I'm suffering. And this is all, this is a focus on limitations minus any giftings. I can't do anything. Well, that's not true either. No, God has wired you up. You do have some gifts. You need to know those gifts, and you need to know your limitations as it relates to those gifts. You need to have an accurate view of yourself. And, and that's, that's, that's true 
humility. By the way, helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck in their pride and self-absorption. So sometimes I, I know we're well-meaning and someone says, oh, I can't do anything and I'm, I'm, I'm worthless, you know, just they're filled with self-pity. Oftentimes what we do is we keep them preoccupied with themselves. That's, that's not a good place to be. That's the essence of sin. So you don't move them from an inferiority complex to a superiority complex. You help them to get their eyes off of themselves. That's their problem. We tend to be too self-focused and self-absorbed. And um, it's, it's not helpful f- for them when we try to cheer them up. No, you can do some stuff. You're really good. And I've seen the good in you and all that. And certainly there's a time and a place to help them to see what their giftings are, but in, in light of their limitations. But more importantly, they've got to get their eyes off of themselves because there's nothing, nothing worse than that, you know, that self-focus. See, a humble person isn't someone who is always telling you that they're a nobody, but it is someone who is, who is contagiously content in Christ and incredibly interested in the well-being of others. Their focus is not on themselves. They're captivated with the beauty of Christ. They understand their gifts and limitations, and they're going to use that as a platform to help others to see what they're seeing in Jesus Christ. So a humble person is, is too busy looking up at God's glory to look down on others or to feel smug about themselves. And so pride is an inner emptiness. Harold Abrahams runs for his glory. That's an in- inner emptiness. Humility is an inner fullness. Eric Little runs for God's glory. You live for his glory. Okay, number four. Number four in your notes. So let me just go through these again. Humble people don't compare, compete with others. They know that every good and perfect gift is from God, have an accurate view of their gifts and limitations, and then number four, rejoice greatly in the privilege of using their God-given gifts to point people to Christ. This is mission, ministry and mission. Listen to verse 29, what he says here. Now, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So the bride is the church, the bridegroom is Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, he's talking about himself, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So he's given us an analogy. Imagine going to a wedding. I've done a lot of weddings, and I love, love doing weddings. I love standing up there with the, with the groom as the bride comes down the aisle. I just love it. And I look at the groom, look at the bride, look at the groom, look at the bride. I've been at weddings where, where the, the groom begins to cry, he just weeps because he knows what he's getting himself into. No, that's not why he's weeping. I hope not. We pray not, okay? Oh, no. What did I get myself into? No, no, it's more like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe this beautiful gal is marrying me. And, I mean, there's just this, whoo, and I'm like, there, there's, there's been a few weddings where I begin to cry. It's like, oh, my goodness. And it's a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. But imagine you're at this wedding, and one of the groomsmen, as the gal's coming down the aisle, the bride coming down the aisle, he, he kind of starts winking at her, trying to draw attention to himself, almost like he's trying to pick up on her. And then, and then when she comes down, and, and the bride and the groom are facing each other, and they're saying their vows, and he kind of peeks over the, kind of off to the, side shoulder of the groom and, and kind of tries to get the attention of the, of the bride and says, hey, 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 look over here, look over here. Look at me. What would you think? You'd think the guy's drunk. That's what you would think. And you're just waiting for the groom to turn around and punch him in the throat, huh? Boom. That would be weird. Now, why did I say that? I have no idea. No, I know exactly why I said that. Because that's what John is saying. I'm just one of the groomsmen. And I'm delighted because uh, the groom has showed up to be with the bride. And I'm here just pointing and making sure they're both together. And um, 
So, I mean, I, I mean that's, that's the picture. So, anytime you have a leader or a pastor in a church that makes it about them and they don't make it about Christ Jesus and helping the bride of Christ connect with him, that's messed up. That's exactly what he's doing, what I just described. John says, I'm not doing that. In fact, listen to what he says. He says that, he says, I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, they're all complaining about, oh, they're all going to him. No, they're supposed to go to him. That's my job. My job is not to make it about me. None of our leaders are here to make it about us. It's a to make it about him and help you to know him, to experience him. That's, that's the purpose of church. And that's the importance of what, what we do. And in fact, let me just, and, and I think that John's showing us the best kept secret of, of ministry and mission. You guys know what the best kept secret of ministry and mission is? <laughs> just go around and ask people that are involved in our children's ministry, youth ministry, greeters, People that are helping out, I do that all the time. I, I, I'll applaud them and say, man, thanks for what you do. That's great. That's fantastic. Typically what they say is, are you kidding me? I love doing this. It is my pleasure to serve. That's what John the Baptist is saying, rejoicing greatly at the gr bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Whether it's picking up paper in the parking lot, cleaning the floors, changing diapers, Whatever it is, hanging out with youth, whatever it is, you're helping, to, helping people to see Christ and his beauty. That's what we all do together, and it brings unbelievable joy. That's the best-kept secret, that it blesses you more than it blesses them. Yeah, they, they receive blessing from you, but, but you're blessed even more. I mean, I love doing what I do week in and week out here. I love getting up and teaching because I, I really, I mean, I've got a front row seat to hear what I say from God to you, but it comes first to me. To be quite honest with you, I think I need it more than you. And that's why he's got me at the front of the class. I'm kind of his troubled kid, okay? And, and so, and I love it. I'll tell you what, I'm telling you, when I study, oh my goodness, this hits me, it nails me, it convicts me, it comforts me it, in so many different ways, the grace of God. So I get a chance to experience his grace and then deliver it to you. And then as I do it to you, oh my goodness, it lights me up. It so nourishes me and helps me in, in, in so many different ways. You have no idea. It blesses me more than it will ever bless you. I love ministry. I love mission. When I tell people about Jesus, oh my goodness. There's nothing like That's the best kept secret of ministry and mission. Ministry and mission brings a personal fruitfulness and fulfillment. And if you don't make your unique, one-of-a-kind con contribution to your church family, it won't be made. You miss out on the blessing, and your church family misses out on being blessed. Acts 20, 35, this is why Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that interesting? 1 Peter 4, 11, uh, 10 through 11, listen to what Peter says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Those are such rich words. Stewards, yeah. The management of something entrusted to you as you administer God's very grace. You're helping people to experience the favor of God. There's nothing like the favor of God, unmerited favor. So as you minister, you're helping people to see the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you. He says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me ask you this question. If you're a Christian, you've been walking with Christ and you're living his word, are you contributing to his work and are you making an impact in this world? In what ways are you contributing to his work here in your local church family, using of your, your time and your talent treasure. That would be part of that. That would be evidence that, that you really understand 
who Christ is and what he's done. By the way, that's part of our 5G process of full devotion to Christ. First G is a genuine Christian, someone who walks with God. Second G is a growing Christian, someone who lives his word. Third G is someone is a giving Christian who contributes to the work of Christ through a local church family like Desert Breeze. Fourth G is a going Christian, and you're wanting to make an impact in this world with the gospel message. So I'm sure you're probably doing that if you're really walking with him and living his word because it becomes an overflow of your life. And that's part of humility. You rejoice greatly in the privilege of using your God-given gifts to point people to Christ, ministry and mission. Nothing will make you more miserable than the endless, unsmiling concentration on your needs, your plans, your desires, your ego, your record, your expectations. It's all about you. That's self-centeredness. That's the essence of sin. Life is all about me. Come on, everybody, look at me. That's a horrible way to live. And that's our culture. That's what we're fostering. We're encouraging this. We applaud this. And it's killing us. It's destroying us. Nothing is more freeing than the privilege of using my God-given gifts to point others to Christ and ministry and mission. It's not just in the church, but in our home and neighborhood and workplace 24-7. God wants to use you. You have gifts. You need to know your gifts are. By the way, in our Game of Life class, we actually help people to understand how you are uniquely shaped. We use the acronym SHAPE to help them discover that. The S, H, A, P, E, S is for spiritual gifts. H is for heart. S, H, A. A is for abilities, okay? P is for personality. You have a unique personality. And then E is for experiences, life experiences. God will use that in you to make an impact for him in this world. Number five, humble people are becoming more and more like Christ and are, are more concerned about what people think of Christ than themselves. You guys are familiar with this phrase from John the Baptist, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. May he increase, may I decrease. This is about becoming more like Christ. Turn to the person next to you and, and see if they can know the answer to this question. What does it mean to become more and more like Christ? What does that look like? What does it look like to become more and more Christ-like? Real quick, I'll have you do that, give you about 20 seconds to do that. Okay, what are you thinking? What are you guys thinking? Are you thinking? Are you thinking? Anybody thinking here? Okay, just want to make sure. Anything come to mind for you? You want to yell out to me? Oh, I like that. Love others as, as he loves us. That's a good one. That's a good one. Anybody else? Deny yourself? Sacrificial, yeah. Yep, like it. Anybody here over on this side? Nobody? <laughs> That's good. You guys are too humble to, uh, to, to share at this time. I was thinking fruit of the Spirit, but all of these answers are in line with fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when you, when you I, mean, I mean, think about that. A humble person is going to experience all of that regardless of their circumstances. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That, that's Christ-like. That's what it looks like to, to be more and more like Christ. And, and why, would that, why would a humble person produce that? Because a humble person is totally dependent upon Christ. Here's what a totally dependent upon Christ person looks like. You can't go a day without interacting with him, loving him, enjoying him, obeying him, experiencing love from him. And when you do that, you see, it's not, it's not about focusing on being like Christ. You've heard me say this many times before. It's not about focusing on being like Christ. It's focusing on being with Christ. And the more you are with him, the more you'll become like him. It becomes the overflow of your life. That's the Christian life. But it starts with humility, and you're totally dependent upon him, and you are desperate for him. And the more desperate you are 
of him, the more you're going to cling to him and walk with him and love him and enjoy him, and the more it's going to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The opposite of this would be pride. Pride is, in fact, if you went to Galatians 5, through 23, in that context, it would tell you the opposite, the fruit of the Spirit. It would be the works of the flesh. And here's my list. Pride is about animosity, defiance, bitterness, unforgiveness, divisiveness, slander, malice, clamor, wrath. I see our world is more and more filled up with all of that. I see that even in homes. I see that even in churches and among churches. It's heartbreaking. It's just based on pride. I've always enjoyed playing team sports. I like individual sports, track and field, but I also like team sports. And in the early days of Desert Breeze, we, uh, in, a way, in, a, in an effort to try to reach out into the community, we, had, uh, we got involved in some softball leagues in the and the softball league was with the city of Phoenix. And so we got a team together because we thought, hey, this would be really evangelistic. We could reach out to these people that we're playing against. And some of you guys are laughing because you, you probably already know what I'm about to say. It wasn't very evangelistic at all because we got our tails beat and we weren't very good losers, okay? And not only that, we had some people on the team is like they didn't even try. I mean, it's like, come on, folks. And, uh, and if you've ever had someone on your team, and maybe you've said this before, but we kind of, we started saying this. Probably wasn't a very nice thing to say, and it was obviously we weren't very Christ-like in any of what we expressed out there. But, uh, but we would say this, you are the best player on the other team. Because of how you were playing, you're helping them to score runs. You let the ball go right between your legs. The guy just hit a grand slam. Good job. And so we would say that. Now, why would I, why would I even give that as, a, as an illustration here? Well, here's, here's what I want you to understand. The devil laughs and is perfectly content when someone claims to be a Christian and yet is full of pride and therefore the best player for the other team, the devil's team. When you're filled with animosity and defiance and bitterness and unforgiveness and divisiveness and slander and malice and clamor and wrath, you're playing for the wrong team if you're a Christian. That's his team. That's the devil's team, not God's team. See, a Christian who is full of pride, causing discord among brothers, is an abomination to God, Proverbs 6.19. We talked about this in the early weeks of this year. Abomination means it's a disgusting thing. It's wickedness before God. And so I wanted to say this. I applaud you guys here at Desert Breeze for continuing to take the high road. That's what we spent four weeks on, talking about taking the high road. Continue to take the high road in your relationships as it relates to politics, in relationships in your home, the community, and throughout the community. Keep taking the high road. Yeah, it's hard, it's difficult, it's supernatural, but the high road is, a, is, a, is the humble path. Remember, we talked about it. It's the path of truth, forgiveness, love. The low road, it's the, it's the road of pride. It's lies. It's unforgiveness. It's bitterness. It's toxic. Christians are the most loved, forgiven, reconciled people on the planet. Therefore, we should be the most loving. We should be the most loving, forgiving, reconciling people on the planet. So I'm just, I'm encouraging you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep taking that high road. We need to continue to, to you know, and when you find yourself on the low road, boom, get back up on the high road. And so John, John's making it very clear, may I, may I decrease, may he increase in my life. That's about becoming more like Christ. I want to point to him. And not only that, John is more concerned about what people think of Christ than himself. Look at verses 31 through 33. He who comes from above is, is above all. So he's saying, don't make it about me. It's not about my reputation. It's about him. It's about his glory. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in, in an earthly way. He's talking about himself there. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He's just saying, oh my goodness, he is beyond our wildest dreams. Do you understand who this Christ Jesus is? When he gets a hold of your life, you will not be the same. It will humble you. You will be changed. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And what will happen in your life is as you become more and more like Christ and more concerned about what people think of Christ, you'll say and you'll echo the words of Galatians 6.14 as Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? Through whom the world is crucified to me. The world doesn't have anything I want. And I to the world, I don't have anything the world wants. That's a wonderful place to live. And the only thing that will bring it, here's number six on your notes. This is, this is the cure to our pride. Humble people are captivated by the beauty and glory of who Christ is and what he came to do. Listen to what he says in verses 34 through 36, the rest of our text. For he, the Son, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Did you notice in verse 34, there, there's the triune God. We believe in the Trinity here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one in essence, three in person. You got the Trinity right there in that verse. Verse 35, for the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the cure to pride is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because your heart is ravished by the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me end with a story and it'll help kind of prepare our hearts for communion this morning. William Borden grew up in Chicago in the late 19th century and went off to Yale in uh, the 1890s. He was part of the very wealthy Borden Dairy family. William was an heir of that wealth, and when he was at Yale, he sensed God's call to the mission field, and he decided he was going to go to North China and work amongst Mongols and Chinese people. It was very, very da dangerous at the time, and when he announced to his family he was going into the missionary work, this was appalling to everybody. A man of his stature, of his wealth, of his station in society, didn't do that. He got opposition from his family, he got opposition from his class of people, but he was absolutely resolute. When he graduated from Yale, he gave his entire inheritance, which at that time was a million dollars. It would be uh, close to 29 million today. He gave all of that to mission agencies. He gave it away. Now in relative poverty, he moved to Cairo to learn Arabic. Just out of college, when his whole life, with his whole life ahead of him, in a very bright future, within a few weeks, he had contracted spinal meningitis, and within a few weeks after that, he was dead. Scratched on an ordinary piece of paper, which he wrote in his diary as he lay dying, found in his bedroom after he died, were th these three phrases. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I mean, why wouldn't he have written in his diary, God, what are you doing? All my obedience, all my commitment, all my promise, all my money, all of this preparation, why would I die now? What possible good is going to come from this? What are you doing? No, he didn't say any of that. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Why? Because he didn't obey God he didn't obey the will of God for his reputation. He didn't obey the, the will of God for results. He didn't obey the will of God for impact. He obeyed the will of God just for God's glory. Not because it made sense, not because he understood it, but because like John the Baptist, his heart was ravished by the beauty and the glory of the humility of Jesus Christ, the greatest example of humility 
is found in our Savior Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. So the big test of whether you truly know God and are walking in vital union and communion with him is humility. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If you're here this morning and you've never humbled yourself before God, this would be a great morning to do it. And you do that by acknowledging your sin that separates you from God, believing that Christ died on the cross for your sins, in your place, for your sins, and then giving your life to him, living your life for him. You could do that right now as we pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, we confess that in our pride we are desperate to fill ourselves with glory, that we end up empty. But we celebrate that our Savior, Jesus Christ, emptied himself of glory so that we could be full. And because we have fullness in Christ by grace through faith in him, we can empty ourselves. We can humble ourselves by giving of our time and our talent and our treasure in, in ministry and missions so that others can be full in him. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. They will be passing out the communion elements. Take both cups. And this is the question I have for you. What is God speaking to you this morning? What is he saying? Respond to him. Talk to him. Interact with him. Pray that God will show you his beauty and his glory because nothing will humble you more. I love the gospel. Absolutely love the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. A life that only that most people only dream about that we have in him. It's just, it's absolutely amazing life that we could have a relationship with the God of, God of the galaxies who loves us, adores us, gave his life for us. Nothing like it. He did that for us. So in him, we have all the acceptance, security, significance we'll ever need, and therefore we can live for his glory and make much of him. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he, was, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. My wife and I will be up at the front here at the end of the service along with any available elders. If you are new, we would love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray with you. Let me bless you as you head into a, a new week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.